Welcome again to another Conservative Historian Podcast. This one entitled Historical Bookshelf. The date, November 2020, and I'm Belisarius Avis. Arguably the question I get asked the most is for recommendations on historical reading. I have accumulated nearly 30 years of reading. The books are endless, but I wanted to share those that I think are entertaining and of historical significance. Now, these are by no means all of the books I've read. I probably have about 500 historical books in my library and another 100 in various e-versions, whether it be Kindle or iPad or whatever have you. But what I wanted to do is share just a handful of those historical works that I think are especially pertinent, especially to those who like to read history through a conservative perspective. Now, a particular group of historians, almost entirely academics, are dismissive of what they call popular history, or worse, dad history. One can practically hear the sniff as they say this. Some might even say that we, quote, cling, unquote, to popular accounts the way we do our guns and religion. There are three types of these history. The first is among highly accredited scholars, but who choose to do what would be called popular history, which is also largely American biographies. These include H.W. Brands or Joseph Ellis. Again, full professors, PhDs in their own right. They can go toe-to-toe with any of the, of the scholarly academicians, but they choose to write in more popular uh, prose and tend to focus in biographies of most notable Americans, and thus they're almost dismissed. Then there are the types that are in the gall of the academics. I mean, really get under their skin. One of those would be journalist David McCullough. He did not go through the academy, didn't have, you know, brandishing huge PhDs, but instead built a massive following through his work. Then there are the semi-historians. These are TV and radio personalities who write history, but not really. You can always tell the wheat from the chaff by whether they include a second author on the cover, usually with the telltale, quote, with, unquote. These folks have the second author do the work, then utilize their viewer or listenership to sell the books. You know, some of these are actually pretty good. Uh, Brett Baer's uh, two books are, are actually pretty good reads and decent historical research. Some are not so much. I would even venture to say some of them are even crappy. And largely an example of that would be Bill O'Reilly. Martin Duger does the real writing, but a lot of his research, especially in the Killing series, I'm not sure if I like that one, in the Killing Reagan book being an especially egregious example of that. But these are all different examples of what we would call popular history. And these would be the histories that tend to have those prominence on the bookshelves as you walk into the Barnes and Noble or when you go onto Amazon, they pop up, especially for folks like us who really enjoy reading history and not just the full scholarly tomes, but something that's a good read. Now, as I've said before, I've read all kinds of history. For example, social history. It features not kings, popes, caliphs, or emperors, but rather what the other 99.9% of humanity over the course of the last 5,000 years actually did. For some people, learning about crops, how horses were shooed, or how someone kept from freezing in a bitter winter is not nearly as much fun as reading about the Battle of Waterloo, but I would say each has its pleasures. One of the more prominent examples of that is, is the book called At Home, and that was social history. Really, one of the first social history books, which I would recommend, was The Return of Martin Gare. 
In addition to social history, there are religious, economics, and labor histories. And I've even read works from the School of Subaltern Studies, a movement that emerged around 1982 as a series of journal articles published by Oxford University Press in India. What this was is a group of Indian scholars trained in the West wanted to reclaim their own history, a lot of the history of India that they had read being written by the British. The primary leader was named as Ranjit Guha, who had written works on peasant uprisings in India. One of the point of subaltern studies is a history that focused on colonialism. Sometimes subaltern studies is a very interesting look at the other side of colonialism, the other side of empire, those who actually worked within the empire, not the rulers thereof, but also subaltern studies does sometimes descend into what I would call grievance history. And of course, there are libraries now full of American history, which is essentially grievance and identity politics wrapped in the false patina of history to perpetuate political power. Now, this is not new. In my book, The Conservative Historian Collected Works, I write about how the father of history, Herodotus, used Greek history for his own purposes. In his telling, the Persians, for example, invaded Greece with armies of over one million people, which would have been nearly logistically impossible. The more powerful the Persian armies, the more overwhelming they seem, the greater in uh, relativism is the Greek victory over such massive hosts. So Herodotus, knowing his audience, which was obviously the Greeks, wanted to make the Greeks seem even more powerful, and therefore he wrote his history accordingly. We'll save all of that for another podcast, or just buy the collected works and you can read my opinions on Herodotus and other histories as well. Now, the following books some of which have a conservative historian formal review on our website, www.conservativehistorian.com. Look for the book review section. Can help provide your studies and writing with information that offers conservative historical perspectives. These should be prerequisites for any accurate collection of historical works that refute conventional, liberal, and progressive dogma, and also push back against those grievance studies that I had talked about earlier. Now, some of these books are more sort of political philosophy, not history as we would understand it, but their narratives are dependent on the historical record and therefore provide several incredible insights into history. And for a full list of our conservative uh, bookshelf, again, please go to the website and look at book review. And now our first historical book that we're going to talk about today, Bully Boy. The Truth About Teddy Roosevelt's Legacy by author Jim Powell. Now, Teddy Roosevelt sits on Mount Rushmore. He has volumes written about him and even was depicted favorably, of course, by Robin Williams in the Night at the Museum movies. So, children growing up, because those movies tend to be fairly children-friendly, will grow up again seeing Teddy as sort of the rough rider figure. In other words, that figure that he wanted everybody else to view him as. But few presidents have done more to create the executive's overweening power today than the 26th president. Teddy was that classic, and he was a progressive, was that classic politician who knew better than you did, who could make decisions better than you can, who could reorganize the country in a fashion better than any group of individuals making decisions on their own. And 
because he ran again for an unprecedented term in 1912, splitting the Republican vote, denying Taft a second term, he gave us Woodrow Wilson. Yes, the eugenicist was really a gift from Teddy. And more than likely, you have read a favorable view of Teddy. This bully boy provides a very useful counterweight. The Cahill Collection, Gifts of the Jews, Sailing the Wine Dark Sea, How the Irish Saved Civilization, and pretty much everything else in Cahill's Hinges of History Collection. Thomas Cahill takes an exciting and somewhat different approach to his work. Quote, We normally think of history as one catastrophe after another, war followed by war, outrage by outrage, almost as if history were nothing more than all the narratives of human pain assembled in sequence. Unquote. The Hinges series, however, is dedicated to, quote, narratives of grace, the recounting of those blessed and inexplicable moments when someone did something else, saved a life, bestowed a gift, gave something beyond what was required by circumstance, unquote. Despite this rather flowery and frankly a little self-serving description, Cahill writes that his history is different. Rather than focus on a specific person or single event, Kiel takes a singular moment in time, such as when Abraham, or Avram, leaves Mesopotamia. He talks about 400s BCE Greece, or the late first century after the birth of Christ, and provides perspective about the importance of that time to history. Now, not everyone is a fan. The Catholic World Report said, quote, outrage-free history, however, has never been easy to write. He, Cahill, professes that his goal is to focus on the inspiring aspects of, for example, the Renaissance and the Reformation. But Cahill can hardly be said to gloss over the catastrophes and outrages of early modern history. Now, there is always a perspective to Cahill's writing, especially as it concerns, let's say, in his contrasts of St. Patrick to Augustine of Hippo in his introductory hinges of history work, How the Irish Saved Civilization. But whereas so many historians get bogged down in their narrative's minutiae, after all, they did the research, so they might as well include it all. Cahill gets to an interesting point, and he always, always makes one think. The Conservative Sensibility by George F. Will. I said earlier that political philosophy would be included on this list, assuming that there was enough history involved within the work to justify inclusion on a list such as this one. And this is definitely one of those cases. If this book, The Conservative Sensibility, does nothing else, it provides the core principle upon which modern American conservatism stands. And this is a direct quote from Will. Quote, what do we seek to conserve? The proper answer is concise but deceptively simple. We seek to conserve the American founding. However, what does it mean to conserve an event, or more precisely, a congress of events that occurred almost 250 years ago. This book is my attempt to answer that question by showing the continuing pertinence of the founding principles and by tracing many of our myriad discontents to departures from those principles. Unquote. Will proceeds to divide his book into sections that discuss the founder's vision and how the progressives delineated from the original course. Each of these chapters, in and of themselves, could be a small book or an extensive essay in Will's vision of and for the Republic. For those readers of Will's opinions and assertions over the years, this will be familiar ground. But for those looking at a historical perspective on the very nature 
of our great nation, this is a great book to begin with. Dancing in the Glory of Monsters by Jason Stearns. Before I get into the full narrative of what this book is about, and I'll tell you what it's about, it's about the 1990s Civil War that occurred into the nation now known as the Congo and once known as Zaire, or at least Zaire at the time of the Civil War, a truly horrific point in history. But if you'll indulge me, I just wanted to give you a quick anecdote for relativism in comparison. In a November 24, 2020 article in the Washington Times, it is noted that, quote, sources from within the company contacted Vice World News this week after it was announced that Beyond Order, 12 More Rules for Life, a book by Jordan Peterson, would be published in March 2021. Jordan's original book, 12 Rules for Life, An Antidote to Chaos, was a smash hit with readers. And although life-threatening health issues, Peterson had an emergency medical benzodiazepine detox kept him out of the spotlight for much of the year. But one of the staffers noted, he is an icon of hate speech and transphobia. Not true. And the fact that he's an icon of white supremacy, regardless of the content of his book, I'm not proud to work for a company that publishes him. A junior employee told the website Tuesday, a town hall event organized by the publisher to address its decision left some of its employees in tears, unquote. For those similar to these employees, Dancing in the Glory of Monsters is a cure to the disease of self-importance, lack of perspective, and an understanding of real history. Jason Stearns uses the tool of several narratives to weave not one, but several stories of how a country such as the Congo formerly Zaire, formerly the Belgian Congo, could have seen all the advantages of vast natural resources wasted. The wars with Rwanda and several other countries, not to mention its own civil wars, led to millions of deaths. And these deaths, which unfortunately are described inaccurately, are absolutely horrific. We have teenagers high on drugs macheting Zaire and villagers. That's just about one example. There is understandably a bias on the part of the media to cover local events, meaning American events. Yet the little amount of press that this human-made disaster achieved in the mid-1990s is borderline appalling. Not that the developed nations could have done much. The United Nations is shown here to be feckless, understaffed, and in many cases as corrupt as the hundreds of organizations and militias organized almost entirely for their interests at the expense of the people of the Congo. Any reader wishing to garner at least a sense of the issues concerning Central Africa today should make Dancing in the Glory of Monsters a must-read. And, as noted before, it's an antidote to that concept of absolute self-importance that is so prevalent today. From Silk to Silicon by Jeffrey Garden Before writing this blog, I was a business person for over 30 years, so a book that extols rather than condemns some of the business people, as is shown within this book, is a welcome relief from the usual narratives. From Silk to Silicon is also a welcome antidote to many of the narratives around globalization. From Silk to Silicon is more mural than painting. It features 10 individuals tied together by the two concepts of globalization and commerce. 
Garden begins his work in the 13th century and features four of his ten figures who existed before the expansion of the railroads. Six of the ten lived before the airplane, but all of the historical figures in Silk to Silicon were globalists. Garden states, quote, Their accomplishments were not only spectacular in their eras, but continue to shape our world today, unquote. In addition to globalists, the majority of the figures were self-made. Again, different narratives than some of the other things we, uh, we read and a bit of a celebration of business people. So nothing wrong with that one. A Monetary History of the United States by Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz. Now, I would recommend pretty much any book by Milton Friedman. And A Monetary History is a fairly large one. But this book is probably the greatest of all of them in terms of economic and financial histories. Now, writing a formal review of the book, back in 1965, H.G. Johnson wrote, quote, The long-awaited monetary history of the United States by Friedman and Schwartz is in every sense of the term a monumental, scholarly accomplishment. The volume sets a new standard for the writing of monetary history, one that requires the explanation of historical developments in terms of monetary theory and its application to the techniques of quantitative economic analysis. One can safely predict that it will be the classic reference on its subject for many years to come. So that review, written over 55 years ago, is still pertinent today. And do not let the sort of daunting size of it or the concept of scholarly and multi-volume sets deter you. As with most Friedman books, it's a pretty good read as well. Myth of the Robber Baron by Barton W. Folsom. I have to confess to a significant historical pet peeve. I really, really dislike the narrative around the, quote, gilded age, unquote. This was a term that Mark Twain came up with in 1873, actually 27 years before the end of this age. But it was sort of, if you will, retro-applied to it. And of course, by gilded, the implication is, is that on the surface it looks great, but underneath it there's rust and rot. Let me give you another quote. So the quote probably did not begin with Churchill, and this one is, quote, the victors write history, unquote, but it resonates regardless. And the victors in the academy include the progressives. So understanding that the Gilded Age had to be negative in order for the progressive era to be positive. In other words, the progressive era was seen as the fix, the antidote, the cure for all of the ills that occurred during the gold during the so-called, again, Gilded Age. And because their favorite time of history, well, maybe it was next to the New Deal, was the Progressive Era, it was necessary to make that preceding era so demanding that only progressive governance could save the Union. Thus was born not just the Gilded Age, but the, quote, robber barons, unquote. Folsom does an admirable job of dispelling many of the myths surrounding late 19th century American history. Osman's Dream by Caroline Finkel. Since so much of historical writing today is dominated by left-wing writers with ideological agendas, much of history today reads more like a political manifesto than a narrative of historical research. Also, popular history tends to be dominated by American or even European figures. This is why Caroline Finkel's Osman's Dream, the history of the Ottoman Empire, is such a revelation. 
the Ottoman Empire, which served as the bridge between the medieval Arab and Turkish civilizations in the Middle East we have today. This is a rich history that is not only important, but rarely touched with with thorough scholarship. Though exhaustive research and content that reaches a full 600 pages, Finkels lays out the facts and asks readers to form their own conclusions. Again, she's giving you the facts. You make the determination. The author packs Osman's dream with over 1,800 notes supporting her story. She also focuses on the sultans, viziers, agas, and other rulers. In other words, those who had the opportunity to influence events. The Triumph of William McKinley by Karl Rove. When I first learned that Karl Rove, a Fox News contributor, also released a history book, I was skeptical, especially when I saw his name all alone on the cover. After reading the book and listening to the audible version, there is no doubt this is a first and last a Rove passion project. No with on this book. This is all Rove. The author spends a little time on McKinley's background and biography, but one can see an expert's mark when it comes to the actual 1896 election. Rove, who helped elect George W. Bush twice, is arguably one of the most significant election managers of our time, and it shows in his analysis here. So many schoolchildren learn about William Jennings Bryan's Cross of Gold speech that it is almost an afterthought that he lost the election. Rove shows why. We see the success of the McKinley front porch campaign, but learn how the Republicans came to that strategy. We also see how Bryan's campaign fell short. Poor organization and spending time in the wrong places come to life, narrated by one who knows that is often as much about whereas about what. If Kyle Rove had been in charge of the Clinton campaign in 2016, there would have been more than one visit to Wisconsin. The Tuchman Collection. The Guns of August, Zimmerman Telegram, and The Proud Tower. A writer can have the right subject, excellent materials, and well-ordered research, which is something that Tuchman brings to all of her works. But readability often comes down to positioning and prose. And in those two regards, there are few better than these disciplines than Barbara Tuchman. Unbroken by Laura Hillenbrand. This might be counted as dad history from some academic sniping class, but it is a great read, though by no means an easy one. In Unbroken, Hillenbrand lists horrifying events that befall Louis Zamperini, including his time within a Japanese prisoner of war camp. During that time, Zamperini experienced near starvation, beatings of all manner, slavery, and even medical experimentation. But Hillenbrand's work takes two tracks. It is not just one man's incredible will to overcome adversity, but also a catalog of the evil perpetrated by the Japanese Empire against the peoples of countries, including China, Japan itself, and Korea. And for those unfortunates who saw the movie, do not be deterred. One of the most significant omissions between the book and the film is the latter's removal of Billy Graham. In the movie, Zamperini shows the same incredible will as in the book, but the reality was is that even his intention and his fortitude were not enough. As shown in the book, Zamperini looked at a failed marriage and a life of alcoholism when he went to a revival meeting and saw Billy Graham, all of this occurring after his wartime experience. It was a conversion moment. It is not difficult to see why Hollywood would downplay such a figure as Graham or even the redemption power inherent in Christianity. Still, 
It was a critical part of the actual historical narrative and receives its just prominence in this work. So we hope you have enjoyed this list. Look out for other lists that will be coming down over the course of months and so forth. And also, always check out www.historical.com where we have essays, more podcasts, more book reviews, and videos. Thanks for listening. This is Bell Alvarez.